Okay, we are in 1 Corinthians chapter 1, and uh, this morning we're starting in verse 4. 1 Corinthians 1, 4. So let's, let's open with prayer. Father God, we do thank you for your word. We thank you for the things that um, you had Paul specifically addressed to the Corinthians that are also applicable to us and in our lives and that we can learn from. Lord, we thank you for that. We thank you for... Um, the blessings that you uh, give us through your word and just pray that you'll be with us this morning. Help us to understand your word. Help us to see how it does apply in our own lives. We just ask these things now in Christ's name. Amen. Okay, for background, we're going to go ahead and read again. Uh, <laughs> chapter 1, verses 1 through 17. 1 through 17. God to be an apostle of Christ Jesus and our brother Sosthenes, to the church of God which is at Corinth, to those who have been sanctified in Christ Jesus, saints by calling, with all who in every place call in the name of our Lord Jesus Christ, their Lord and ours. Grace and peace to you from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. I give thanks to my God always for you because of the grace of God that was given you in Christ Jesus. For in him you have been enriched in every way, with all kinds of speech and with all knowledge. Because, because our testimony about Christ was confirmed in you. Verse 7. So that you are not lacking in any gift as you wait for the revealing of the Lord Jesus Christ. He will keep you strong to the end, so that you will be blameless on the day of our Lord Jesus Christ. God is faithful who has called you into fellowship with His Son, Jesus Christ our Lord. Now I exhort you, brethren, by the name of our Lord Jesus Christ, that you all agree, and there be no divisions among you, but you be made complete in the same mind and in the same judgment. For it has been reported to me by Chloe's people that there is quarreling among you, my brothers. Now I mean this, that each one of you is saying, I am of Paul, and I am of Apollos, and I am of Cephas, and I of Christ. Is Christ divided? Was Paul crucified for you? Were you baptized in the name of Paul? I thank God that I baptized none of you except Crispus and Gaius. So no one can say that you were baptized in my name. Yes, I also baptized the household of Stephanus. Beyond that, I don't remember if I baptized anyone else. I'd like to pass. For Christ did not send me to baptism, but to preach the gospel, not with words of human wisdom, lest the cross of Christ be emptied of its power. Okay. Last Sunday we read that. And, uh, here Paul is talking about, I didn't baptize any of you, or just a few of you, and, yeah. and we were going to have a baptismal service. <laughs> And, and the point is, Paul doesn't want people saying, being bragging about, well, you know, I was baptized by Billy Graham, so I'm really special kind of a thing. Mm -hmm. Yeah. It doesn't minimize baptism in any way. Um, so we, we went through the introduction last week, first three verses, and uh, we see Paul, you know, really emphasized his authority as an apostle of Christ. So he has Christ's authority. And he's going to use it in this book to, for correction and instruction 
uh, as to how they ought to live. Um, we also saw uh, that the church at Corinth is called the church of God. And that was a phrase that we don't see hardly anywhere else except in the Corinthian epistles. Um, and the emphasis there is that they are part of this universal church because he goes on to say, you know, with all who in every place call the name of Christ. And so Paul wants them to know that he's not picking on them because of their specific problems and these are not rules that just apply to them, but this is for the entire church, the whole body of Christ. Um, and Debbie brought up last time that, you know, why didn't he call them the uh, Corinthian church? And the fact that calling someone a Corinthian in those days is like calling someone a sodomite today. And that's why the word was not used. And so I, um, I, I did look up the, you know, the Corinthian is not used anywhere in, in the New Testament in the, in the terms of a fornicator. When we see fornication, it's always poneros, where we get pornography from. So that's the term that's used. Um, but that is a good point. That might be part of the reason why they're never addressed as Corinthians. Um, the other point that he makes here in the uh, uh, beginning is that uh, they're saints. Um, you know, God has set them apart. They are. Uh, they have a holy standing before God. Despite all the failings and all the problems they have, they still are saints. They are. They've been sanctified. They have the perfect standing before God, and that is something that's really hard for us. You know, I have times I sin, and then am I supposed to go boldly before the throne of grace, as it says in Hebrews? You know, I feel dirty. I don't. God doesn't. You know, I shouldn't accept me in His presence. And we have to really understand how completely Christ has uh, forgiven us and sanctified us, because God says, "You come into My presence." Christ has covered your sins. So He's telling them that here. Again, saints by calling, sanctified in Christ. Okay, so our first section today is uh, starting in verse 4 and going through the first part of verse 7. I thank my God always concerning you for the grace of God which was given you in Christ Jesus, that in everything you were enriched in him in all speech and all knowledge, even as the testimony concerning Christ was confirmed to you so that you are not lacking in any gift. So Paul begins by giving thanks for them. So he's going to have all these problems to deal with, but he's thankful for them. Uh, and that's something we see in almost every one of these epistles he writes to the churches. He's thankful for the believers there. Um, the only, you know, I, you can see it in Romans, Philippians, Colossians, First and Second Thessalonians. You don't see it in Galatians. Because Galatians was, he he's went right into the problem of a false gospel. I mean, it was very polemic, oh, polemic, I guess is the right word. Um, he's combating those who have a false gospel. So that's, he goes right into that. Ephesians is just the opposite. He starts by blessing God. He is so overwhelmed with God's glory and blessing that he um, almost skips giving thanks for the believers in Ephesus because he's telling, you know, he's uh, praising God. 
So he's thankful for the, these believers. Um, they belong to God. They, they're blessed by him, and, and Paul is thankful for them. So he goes on now to, to talk about some of the blessings uh, that God has given them. And he mentions, first off, the spiritual gifts. He says, you were, in everywhere you enriched in him. Um, and he says, uh, especially in speech and knowledge. When you think of the Greeks, say, like in Athens, you know, we know the names of a lot of ancient Greeks. In Matthew's the Pythagorean theorem, Archimedes discovered buoyancy. Um, um, you know, there's Plato, Socrates. There's a lot of wisdom, a lot of great orators in Greece. They had a lot of wisdom, they had a lot of um, good speech. And what Paul's saying here to the Corinthians is, God's given you something better than that. You know, they were renowned for their speech, for their oratory and, and, and knowledge. But God says, you've got something better. <coughs> God's given you all speech. He's given you all knowledge. And in this case, uh, I think he's talking about the spiritual gifts that we'll read about later when we get to chapter 12. There's uh, gifts of uh, tongues, of prophecy, and knowledge. Now, one of the reasons we'll be talking about it is because they had some problems with how they were exercising those gifts. But nonetheless, God had given them these gifts. The other thing that we'll see here is that um, Paul is emphasizing the giving of the gifts and the giver of the gifts, not the gifts themselves. So God is blessed for having given them these spiritual blessings. Let's turn to Ephesians, chapter 1, verse 3. I mentioned this earlier, and I can go read it. Ephesians, chapter 1, verse 3. Would someone like to read that for us? Okay. Blessed be God. Praise be to God. He has blessed us with every spiritual blessing. So this is why he's not immediately giving thanks for the Ephesians. He's blessing, praising God. But again, we see every spiritual blessing poured out here. And in particular here among the Corinthians. Um, they have all these spiritual gifts. Um, and one of the things these gifts does is it it gives confirmation that they have received the gospel, that they have believed the gospel, and they're saved. And that's what we see um, in verse 6. It says, even as the testimony concerning Christ was confirmed in you. The testimony concerning Christ was the gospel. They received it. How is it confirmed? How, do, how does Paul know that they received the gospel? It's because of the outpouring of spiritual gifts. Let's turn to Acts chapter 11. This goes back to the story about uh, Peter going to Cornelius. Cornelius was the first Gentile in the church. And the Jews weren't really sure that God would extend these blessings to Gentiles. But uh, he sent Peter to Cornelius 
And Peter was still in the midst of trying to explain the gospel, and Cornelius and others started speaking in tongues. I mean, it almost interrupted Peter. So Acts chapter 11, someone like to read verses 15 through 18. As I began to speak, the Holy Spirit came on him, on them as he had come on us at the beginning. Then I remembered what the Lord had said, John baptized with water, but you will be baptized with the Holy Spirit. So God gave them the same gift he gave us, who believed in the Lord Jesus Christ, who was I to think I could stand in God's way. When they heard this, they had no further objections and praised God, saying, so then even to Gentiles God has granted repentance that leads to life. Okay. You're here. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I mean, Peter just say, am I going to argue with God? <laughs> there's some wisdom, yeah. <laughs> now that's, and there's a few places, uh, in, you know, in Acts where the, the gift of tongues was specifically given for that reason. Because how, how do you know if the Spirit comes on somebody? You know, when, when we believe, God gives us his Spirit. You know, it's not something visible. It's not like this little red flag goes up and says, you know, you now have the Spirit. Um, I think, you know, we may experience something. I, I think I remember the, the peace that came over me. It's like a burden getting lifted off your shoulders. The relief, the, you know, a sense of joy. Um, and so, you know, we can have our own experience, different kinds of experiences of what it means to be saved. But this was something brand new. Gentile in the church, God had to give them an obvious sign so that they would believe it, so the Jews would accept the Gentiles into the church. Um, in Acts, let's go on, also look at uh, where am I at? chapter 15. It's the same thing coming up again in chapter 15, verses 7 through 9. This was the first big church council. And after there had been much debate, Peter stood up and said to them, Brothers, you know that in the early days God made a choice among you, that by my mouth the Gentiles should hear the word of the gospel and believe. And God, who knows the heart, bore witness to them by giving them the Holy Spirit just as he did us. And he made no distinction between us and them, having cleansed their hearts by faith. Okay. So God sent Peter... It says, God knows their hearts. God knew that they had accepted. They were now believers, and so he gave them this sign. And the sign was for the Jews to be able to accept the Gentiles into the body of Christ. So the existence of all the, the gifts of tongues and prophecy and other things that we will see later among the Corinthians is really proof of their salvation. They would not have those gifts if they had not been saved. So that's the confirmation that uh, the testimony uh, was given to them. As it says at the end of verse, uh, or, or in the beginning of verse 7, you're not lacking in any gift. God's poured out all the gifts upon them. He blessed them richly. And that should give them assurance of their salvation. One of the things we're seeing here is Paul is building them up, giving them assurance before he has to start dealing with their problems so that they know that, okay, they're going to get all, uh, some... Being criticized and critiqued is not easy to receive that. And, so, and Paul knows that, so he's, 
he's, he's making sure that they, they understand uh, their position in Christ, their sanctification, and, and they're confident in their salvation here before he starts dealing with the problems. And so we see that again here in uh, the end of verse 7 through verse 9. So you're not lacking in any gift, awaiting eagerly the revelation of our Lord Jesus Christ, who shall also confirm you to the end, blameless in the day of our Lord Jesus Christ. God is faithful through whom you were called into fellowship with his Son, Jesus Christ our Lord. So this is another evidence of salvation, is they have confidence in what we call our blessed hope. Let's turn to Titus 2. That's where the blessed hope is the return of Christ. Titus chapter 2, would someone like to read verse 13 for us? That's what we're looking forward to. The return of Christ. We come as, and in Titus is where it's called a blessed hope. Um, hope, again, is, is not wishful thinking. Scripturally, it's confident expectation. We know something's going to happen. We're looking forward to it. It is our hope. It is what we're, we're looking forward to. We're not, there's no iffy... You know, maybe it'll happen, maybe it won't. No, we're confident in it. Um, so let's go back and look at why they can, we can be confident. Let's go to John chapter 14. How can we be confident that Christ is going to return? We'll just look at a couple passages. John 14, verses uh, 1 through 3. Do not let your heart be troubled. Believe in God, believe also in me. In my Father's house are many dwelling places. If it were not so, I would have told you, for I go to prepare a place for you. If I go and prepare a place for you, I will come again and receive you to myself, that where I am, there you may be also. And you know the way where I am going. Okay. So, so he's told the disciples, this, this is the Last Supper. He's going to uh, be arrested and then taken to the cross. And they're, you know, they've been following him for three years. And he's leaving. You know, they're they're going to be left in the, by themselves. And, and you know, they're sorrowing over that and worried. And, and he's telling them, no, I'm going to come back for you. I'm going to go away to my father's house. I'll be in heaven, but I will return and take you to be with me where I am. God wants us in his presence. And so that's his promise. And his word is faithful and true. So let's also turn to Acts chapter 1. So this is the Christ's ascension. So 40 days after his resurrection, he meets them on the Mount of Olives and he ascends into heaven and we have Acts chapter 1, someone like to read verse 11 for us. Men of Galilee, they said, Why do you stand here looking into the sky? The same Jesus who has been taken from you, from you into heaven will come back in the same way you have seen him go into heaven. Okay. So the angels tell the disciples, You watched him go up, he will come back 
it's the same way. So uh, there's lots of other places where we're, we're told throughout Scripture that this is our hope. We're looking forward to the, the, the return of Christ, his appearing, his return. Um, and so Paul is, again, bringing that up to the Corinthians. Um, you're, you're waiting for this. You have that hope. You know, that's, a, that's an indication of, of your, uh, that you belong to him. You're looking forward to him returning. This is like when a loved one goes off and they're gone for a while and, they, and you know they're coming back and you're looking forward to it. Um, this word that's translated here as awaiting eagerly, or in some cases eagerly awaiting, um, I think it's used in the New Testament about nine times. Five of them directly relate to Christ's return. So let's look at some of these. Let's look at Galatians chapter 5, verse 5. So they either relate directly to Christ's return or to the blessings that will accrue to us when he returns. And that's the first one, Galatians 5, 5. For through the Spirit we eagerly wait, by faith the righteousness for which we hope. Okay, we are eagerly awaiting this righteousness. Um, when will we be made righteous? When Christ returns. We will be transformed. And we'll, we'll see that in the next passage we're going to look at. Right now, are we... On a day-to-day -day basis, are we righteous on a continuous basis? <laughs> no. No. You know, I get so tired of my old sin nature. <laughs> you know, I, it's one of the reasons we look forward to Christ's return. Christ comes, the old sin nature's gone. You know, we're glorified when he returns. We're made new. So uh, that's one of the reasons we're looking forward to that. Uh, let's go to Philippians chapter 3. I would like to read verses 20 and 21. But our citizenship is in heaven, and from it we await a Savior, the Lord Jesus Christ, who will transform our lowly body to be like his glorious body, by the power that enables him even to subject all things to himself. Okay, mine says we eagerly wait for a Savior. Now in this case, it's not just a trans forming of our inner souls, it's our body that gets transformed. You know, we, we got aches and pains and wonder why our body won't do what we want it to do. <laughs> we get a new body uh, when he returns, so he'll transform our bodies. Um, and then finally, let's go to Hebrews chapter 9. Hebrews chapter 9 and verse 28. So Christ also, having been offered once to bear the sins of many, will appear a second time for salvation without reference to sin to those who eagerly await him. Okay, we're eagerly awaiting him. He's going to return for basically to complete our salvation. And that's what we just saw in the previous two passages. You know, we'll be freed from our old natures, we'll be freed from our old bodies, our salvation will be completed when he returns. <clears throat> so they're looking forward to this, and that's an indication of their, 
of their salvation. <clears throat> and then Paul tells the Corinthians, um, you can be absolutely assured that you're going to be there when Christ returns. Um, he says, you know, the, the revelation of our Lord Jesus Christ, who shall also confirm you to the end, blameless in the day of our Lord Jesus Christ. The day of our Lord Jesus Christ is the day of his return. Um, Paul says, Jesus himself will confirm them to that. He confirms us to that day. So it doesn't depend on our performance. Um, it's by God's grace. It depends on his promise. So there's that confirmation. There's the assurance uh, that we will be uh, saved. We will be there when he returns. And one way of confirming is uh, that we have been given the Holy Spirit. We've already talked about that they have the spiritual gifts. Well, let's look at 2 Corinthians chapter 1. <clears throat> you know, the gifts are confirmation that the Spirit is in us. But what does that necessarily mean? 2 Corinthians 1, would someone like to read verses? Okay. Okay, 21 and 22. Now it is God who makes both us and you stand firm in Christ. He anoints us, set his, set his seal of ownership on us, and put his spirit in our hearts as a deposit guaranteeing what is to come. Okay. So we see God has set his seal, the Spirit, the Holy Spirit, is um, a pledge or a, a down payment. So they know they have the Spirit because they've seen the spiritual gifts. And that the fact that the Spirit is in us is his, God's down payment. He's, he has purchased us and he's going to complete that at the appointed time. So that's, again, there's assurance there. And we see this again in Ephesians chapter 1. So let's turn to Ephesians 1. So I'm going to like to read verses 13 and 14 here. In him you also, after listening to the message of truth, the gospel of your salvation, having also believed, you were sealed in him with the Holy Spirit of promise, who was given as a pledge of our inheritance with a view to the redemption of God's own possession to the praise of his glory. Yeah, I, I, I can't really clarify that. <laughs> so as clear as you can get, I can repeat it. Uh, you heard the message, you heard the gospel, you believed, you were sealed him with the Holy Spirit was given to you, and the Holy Spirit is, again, the pledge of our inheritance. It's the down payment. It's the, um, my, my the seal. Uh, verse 14 says, Who is the guarantee of our inheritance until we acquire possession of it? Right. So that's another word. Up until we acquire possession. And what is the acquiring of the possession? That's when Christ returns and, and he, God finishes our salvation at that time. Um, but again, you know, this is Paul is giving them their assurance that they're not going to lose it somewhere along the way. Uh, it's God who seals them. Um, 
Well, what happens though if you die first? What happens if you die before Christ returns? You know, and that was a question the Thessalonians had. So let's turn to First Thessalonians. I won't see it. You know, what about our, you know, our friends, they've, our relatives? They've died. You know, are they going to miss this? So, uh, this is a little longer passage. We'll, we'll read verses thirteen through eighteen. Uh, let's let's read around. What chapter? Uh, 1 Thessalonians chapter 4, okay, and we're starting when? 13, okay. 13 through 18. But we do not want you to be uninformed, brothers, about those who are asleep, that you may not grieve as others do who have no hope. For if we believe that Jesus died and rose again, even so God will bring with him those who have fallen asleep in Jesus. According to the Lord's word, we tell you that we who are still alive who are left until the coming of the Lord, will certainly not precede those who have fallen asleep. For the Lord himself will descend from heaven with a cry of command, with the voice of an archangel, and with the sound of the trumpet of God. And the dead in Christ will rise first. After that, we who are still alive and are left will be caught up together with them in the clouds to meet the Lord in the air. And so we will be with the Lord forever. Therefore, encourage each other with these words. Okay, so we see, again, they're eagerly awaiting the return of Christ, but they're worried about those who have fallen asleep, who have passed away. Are they going to miss this? And Paul's saying, no. They got moved to the front of the line. <laughs> they're going to be the first ones to see Christ return. <laughs> first class. Yeah, first class. They're traveling. First class. Uh, so, you know, and they, they were worried about that. So this is a wonderful promise, uh, an encouragement to these, these people before, uh, here again in Corinthians, before Paul starts dealing with all the problems they have. And that's, we're going to get to that. But um, So, you know, again, this section, Paul reminds them, uh, God is faithful. He has called them into fellowship with, with Jesus Christ, no matter how many problems they have, they're secure in Christ. And this depends on God's faithfulness, not on their own. Um, one of the pastoral epistles. If we are faithless, he remains faithful, for he cannot deny himself. Very strong promise. Paul needs to assure them of their secure relationship with Christ both now and into eternity before he starts dealing with all their failures in living in accordance with his calling. So, now starting in verse 10, he's going to address the first of the issues that they are dealing with. So this will be in verses 10 through 17. And that's the problem of divisions in the body of Christ. So starting just with verse 10. Now I exhort you, brethren, by the name of our Lord Jesus Christ, that you all agree, and there be no divisions among you, but that you be made complete in the same mind and in the same judgment. So what's his main points? He wants you all to agree, that there be no divisions among you, and you be united in the same mind and judgment. That was not the case that was going on in Corinth, it's also not the case in the modern church. So, do we all agree? No. So, he begins uh, this section by 
He exhorts or appeals to them, depending on your translation. And this word used for exhort or appeal, the word is parakaleo. And it, it means to call to a person uh, in a way of producing a certain effect. Um, now this is, this is not as strong a word as command. That's a difference there. It means that you're, you're calling to someone, you want to produce an effect in them. Um, in some places it's translated urge. I urge you or I exhort you or I appeal to you. So what is the effect that he wants to cause here? In this case, it's unity. In other places, the effect that, that God wants to cause is comfort. When we get to, maybe we'll get to 2 Corinthians after this book, that'll be, <laughs> it might be years away, but there's a whole section on God comforting them. You know, God comforts us so that we be able to comfort others. That's the same word. So the effect there is to produce comfort in others. Um, let's turn to John chapter 17, or 13, John 14. I'm transposing all my numbers. John chapter 14. John chapter 14. We'll see the noun form of this word. Someone like to read verses 15 through 17. If you love me, you will keep my commandments. And I will ask the Father, and he will give you another helper to be with you forever. Even the Spirit of truth, whom the world cannot receive, because it neither sees him nor knows him. You know him, for he dwells with, him, with you and will be in you. Okay. You know where our word is here? The noun form of, I will send you another helper or comforter. The Holy Spirit is called the paraclete, not parakeet, paraclete. <laughs> There's an L in there. That's the noun form of our word paracleo. So the Holy Spirit is comes into us to help us to give us comfort when we need comfort, to urge us to do the right things. So he's the one who does this in our lives. So again, they, you know, they've received the Holy Spirit and he's in working in them to produce these effects. <clears throat> so here it's an appeal uh, to them to, for unity. Um, now it's not, again, it's not as strong a word as uh, command, but he's appealing by the name of Jesus Christ, which makes it pretty strong. This is what Jesus wants to see in us. He wants to see us uh, have this unity. So the first part of this appeal uh, from God is for that that we might agree and be united in mind and judgment. So this is really uh, refers to having a, a common belief system. Uh, Paul had delivered them the basics of the gospel and taught them about uh, Christ and Christianity, and they should agree on that. 
Um, now, looking at the church today, this looks like a pipe dream. Do you expect everybody in the Christian in Christianity to agree on everything? As long as you agree on the main points, right? Yeah, <laughs> the main point's true. Yeah, I was reading a little bit of a church fathers and church history and about reformers and Anabaptists killing each other. I mean, yeah, it was... <laughs> right. Yeah, they were... That is, that is not what God wants. No, not at all. Um, so, anyways, uh, he, he wants to see this uh, uh, unity. Let's go back to John again. Chapter 17 this time. This is Christ's prayer. John chapter 17, someone like to read verse 23. John 17, 23. I in them and you in me, so that they may be brought to complete unity. Then the world will know that you sent me and have loved them even as you have loved me. Okay, so this is Jesus' prayer to the Father. This is what he's desiring for the church. This is why he's urging them in Corinthians to be united. Um, they may be perfected in unity. That's what he desires. And what was what's the result of that here in this verse in John? So the world will know. So the world will know that God sent Jesus into the world. It's a testimony about Jesus. It's how we testify about him. Um, that God did send him indeed. So uh, this is important to have this unity that they agree. Um, and so this is this is the positive part of this verse. I want you to agree. I want you to th think along the same lines. Uh, to you know, look at the faith and 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 be in agreement here. Um, we also have the negative side. The pro prohibitive side, that there be no divisions among you. Avoid divisions. Um, the word here is, the Greek word is schisma, where we get schisms. Sometimes you see that word. Um, let's look at, turn ahead to chapter 11 in 1 Corinthians. Verse 18, someone like to read that. 1 Corinthians eleven eighteen. 18. For in the first place, when you come together as a church, I hear that divisions exist among you, and in part I believe it. Okay, so this is the passage we read for communion. This is where you've got the wealthy group enjoying their huge feast in one corner of the church and the poor starving in the other corner. You know, there's divisions, social divisions here. Uh, this is, may not be doctrinal divisions, but they had divisions. They had their cliques. Um, and he's, and <laughs> Paul's not directly condemning them of doing this. He says, I've heard this, and I in part believe it. He says, that may be true. You know, so he's kind of not being too harsh with them here. But going on to chapter 12... Would someone like to read verses 24 and 25? 
Here he's talking about the different members of the body. And 25 also. Okay. So that there should be no division in the body, but that, but that its parts should have equal concern for each other. Okay. So here he's talking about the, the body of Christ, where everybody, all the different members have different functions. And he's saying that's why God made us that way. You know, you can't reject somebody because they're an essential element of the body of Christ. We all function together. We should care about each other you know, as parts. And that's the way God designed the, the body of Christ. Um, you, sometimes, you, you know, if you have a division in the church, you, someone who's essential gets left out, and then the church suffers because of that. Um, so again, we see God's desire for the church to operate in unity. He's given us the spirit of unity. He's given us... Um, multiple gifts so that we work together to produce that kind of unity. Okay, let's turn to Ephesians um, chapter 4. We have the, the same idea. Ephesians 4, would someone like to read verses 1 through 6 for us? As a prisoner for the Lord, then I urge you to live a life worthy of calling you have received. Be completely humble and gentle. Be patient, bearing with one another in love. Make every effort to keep the unity of the Spirit through the bond of peace. There is one body and one Spirit, just as you were called to one. Hope, hope when you were called. One Lord, one faith, one baptism one God and Father of all, who is over all and through all and in all. So, okay, so here, you know, again, Paul is preaching to the Ephesians now that he wants to see unity in their body. And he starts by listing these uh, traits, uh, humility and gentleness and patience and love. What does that sound like? It sounds like the fruit of the Spirit, right? Yeah, that's, that's from Galatians 5, 22 and 23. You go through the fruit of the Spirit from that passage, and that's what you see here. Again, it's the Holy Spirit producing that fruit. We put up with each other. <laughs> We're patient with each other. And some people require more patience than others. Um, <laughs> but we see that, you know. Um, and that's, um, that's kind of the, the uh, attitude, the character traits that produce unity in the body. And it comes from the Spirit. You know, if, if we submit to the Spirit, as we should. Then he also gives what I would call the structural basis for this unity. One reason we should be, there's, we're all part of one body. We have the same Spirit, one hope. We talked about that. Um, one Lord, one faith, meaning we have, there's only one truth. You know, um, we have different ideas about what it might be. I don't think any of us knows what it is. One, exactly, but uh, one truth, one baptism, one God, one Father. So that's the structural basis. We have all this stuff together. Why should we not 
be united. Um, okay, well, I need to close there. I was going to talk more about the, the one faith that, that we have, that there's one truth, but that'll have to wait. So, um, Russ, would you like to close in prayer for us? Father God, we're ever blessed to be able to be in your presence this day. We thank you for your love for us. We thank you for everything that you do for us today. We thank you for your son, who you did give us. We also realize that none of us will ever get in agreement on everything. But in this word, we would pray that we, we would agree on everything that you have written and given the uh, apostles the gift to us let them write it down. We ask now that your blessing be on the rest of this morning and be with the pastor as he brings your word further. Through St. Christ we pray. Amen. Amen.